It's Monday, July 29th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. First off today, an interesting conversation with Vivian Ming, a theoretical neuroscientist, AI expert, and professional mad scientist about using technology to augment human sight, hearing, memory, and emotions. In particular, she wants to use tech to turn her son who is diagnosed with autism into a cyborg of sorts with superpowers, giving him the ability to read and recognize emotions in other people or enhancing working memory. It would be a huge benefit to Vivian's son, but does it give him an unfair advantage? Does tech that boosts human potential change what it means to be human? Vivian joins us for what happens when we all want to be superhuman. Next, President Trump has been handed a huge victory for his immigration agenda and building a wall on the southern border. The Supreme Court has cleared the way for $2.5 billion in military funding to be used for border wall construction. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for this and the latest problem for President Trump. He's fighting back accusations of racism once again after lashing out on Twitter against Representative Elijah Cummings. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. If I'm augmenting my son, even with well-intentioned augmentations, and as a result, let's say he scores better on the SATs, well, who wouldn't want that for their kids? In fact, if you don't augment your kids, how will they ever keep up? Joining us now is Vivian Ming, theoretical neuroscientist, AI expert, and professional mad scientist. Thanks for joining us, Vivian. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. We saw an article in Quartz, and the title caught my eye right away, Why I'm Turning My Son Into a Cyborg. You explored a lot of neurotechnologies and ways to augment human sight, hearing, memory, creativity, and emotions. And your son has autism, and you were finding different ways to help him operate in this world of mostly neurotypicals, which is everybody basically that, as you mentioned in the article, has a boring brain. I love that. But tell us a little bit about why you're looking into these technologies. Well, the first thing, to be totally fair, is I'm an old school sci-fi geek. And even when I went to grad school long ago, I would tell, you know, the other prospective grad students that I wanted to build cyborgs. And of course, they all thought I was a kook when they were probably (laughs) right. But in the years since, you know, I've had the chance to... Uh, do research and build companies and realize that what I actually cared about was helping people. If you look at someone like my son that can't read facial expressions the way, you know, a neurotypical person does, it, it, it's like a second language. They can learn how, but it's hard. It's effortful. What if you could build a pair of magic glasses that could read the expressions for them and even teach them how to do it? So that's the crazy kind of science fiction vision. But then I got a pair of Google Glass um, from Google when they were still experimenting with them. And I was able to build exactly that because I happened to have this background in both neuroscience and AI that allowed me to be exactly the kind of kooky mad scientist that could build something. You know, and it's important to me even to go further and say, I wasn't trying to cure my son's autism. Him being autistic is part of what makes him special and unique. I just wanted to give him that superpower so that he could learn the language all of the rest of us, you know, take for granted. Tell us about this system that you built called the Super Glass. As you mentioned, you were working with the Google Glass and you had previously 
worked on building a real-time lie detection system that would uh, recognize facial expressions uh, for people on camera and infer their emotions. Yeah, you know, my original introduction to machine learning, the core technology behind modern artificial intelligence, was working as an undergrad on this crazy CIA-sponsored project to do lie detection. So that lab actually eventually spun off and uh, now powers most of the face recognition and emotion recognition in your iPhone. Wow. But back then, it was just a wild idea. It was 20 years ago. Could we actually do this? And we could. And I was able to, for example, take that technology and build a system to reunite orphan refugees with extended family members based on faces. And then later, when Google gave me a pair of Google Glass, I thought, well, gosh, I could take the same technology and use it with that live camera. So Google Glass was kind of like a smartphone built into a pair of glasses. We were able to take the camera on that and the little heads-up display, analyze people's faces, uh, essentially in real time, and then write, uh, with the case of my son, he's perfectly verbal and literate, so write the emotion uh, on the screen. So if you're looking at someone uh, that is smiling, uh, and in this case, a real smile, their orbital muscles and their eyes contract, uh, then it would say happy on the screen, uh, or it would say sad or angry or disgusted. And they can learn how to read facial expressions in natural interactions with other people. So obviously, in this case, it's not like we're directly implanting anything into some someone's brain, right. we're just taking something that my son couldn't do on his own, and giving him a little extra help. And it turns out that little extra help was enough for him to learn how to do it. I mean, that is so interesting. You mentioned it in the article. It didn't level the playing field. It just gave him a different bat to play with. You said that your son was able to kind of learn some of these emotions. How long did it take to take effect? Uh, yeah, so you can do an interesting comparison because the standard uh, today is cartoon places on flashcards. So if I took a kid like my son and I showed them flashcards, this person's happy, this person's sad, uh, you know, it, it's learnable. It takes time. Getting it right in a nuanced way takes time. With my son, we saw some meaningful differences within a couple of months. But what's cool is not only is it faster than cartoon faces, but it has this other quality which is um, because you're learning how to read emotions in natural interactions, you learn the story of emotions, which in other words means you learn empathy. You learn why people become happy or sad, which seemed like it was a separate thing for autistic kids to deal with, but in fact, maybe it's kind of related. If you can't tell if someone's happy or sad, it's hard to understand why other people do what they do. The world becomes kind of a big mystery. But in these contexts where we're able to train these kids as they interact with people in the world, it produces these broader beneficial effects. My son is still clearly different, and I think that's wonderful. Yeah. Turns out I'm pretty different too. Um, <laughs> but now those differences are in the context of a world that makes sense to him and a world in which he makes a little bit more sense to everyone else. Right. Tell us a little bit about neuroprosthetics, because this is something else that you're working on also. These are probably things that are um, more in the line of what people might be thinking of, uh, implants that interface with the brain. So my particular focus 
is what we call cognitive neuroprosthetics. So can I literally jam something in your brain to make you smarter? Or some of these are wearable, but they actually still directly interface with the brain, changing uh, how different parts of your brain synchronize with one another. And in that place, now we're really talking about changing people, which for me is important because I'm thinking of populations of kids with traumatic brain injury where they have profound working memory deficits or people experiencing Alzheimer's or other forms of uh, later life dementia. And what's amazing about these technologies as we're beginning to just recently discover is you can change the trajectory of what it means to have a working memory deficit, to have dementia by actually going in and changing the way the brain functions. Uh, so to give one concrete example, we're working with a, a startup based right here in Berkeley that is using something called transcranial alternating current stimulation. It's a little patch, you put it on your forehead and it turns itself on, it's got a little built-in battery and for about two hours, you're literally smarter. If anyone listening to this is old <laughs> enough to remember those old Simon games where you push buttons and, you know, the, the colors and the lights right. become a longer and longer pattern that you have to remember, most of us can do maybe a seven-length pattern before you start to forget what comes next. So you put this on, and within about five minutes, you can do a nine-length pattern. So about a 20% increase in people's working memory capacity. Now, at an individual level, some kid that falls on their bike or is abused by an adult in their life, or in some cases, terrible research showing poverty itself steals this kind of cognitive capacity from kids. If you could go in and throw a little patch on their head, maybe just once a week, pair it with an education intervention, how could you not? Right. And that really leads into a lot of the other stuff that you ask in this article. I mean, these are great things. These would be amazing things to help people with. But what about the flip side? What about people who think this could be an unfair advantage? What about, you know, if these technologies really start to advance, what about everybody else that wants to get in on this game? You know, it could expand far beyond just the people that need it, that would need the help. You know, a normal person would totally love to have a 20% better memory. Part of what you ask in your article is with these things, do we change what it means to be human? Are we crossing a line? I'm sure many people listening uh, heard about Elon Musk's recent announcement yes. that he's building a company around some of these very technologies. Uh, I have to say somewhat boringly talking about simply wiring the brain to the internet uh, as opposed to changing the brain itself. But still, the fundamentals are there. This is an, a, an area that... Reed Hoffman, uh, the founder of LinkedIn, and um, Eric Schmidt, the former chairman of Google and others, are starting to put a lot of money into this space, both as a matter of research, but also as a matter of uh, building businesses. You really need to wonder, do I want Facebook in my head? And what I tried to evoke in the title of uh, the essay is, if I'm augmenting my son, even with well-intentioned uh, augmentations. And as a result, let's say he scores better on the SATs. Well, who wouldn't want that for their kids? Right. In, in fact, exactly. if you don't augment your kids, uh, and how will they ever keep up? And that becomes a really profound problem because now it isn't simply 
a straight ethical choice. But because some people might want to do it, and I guarantee you there are many that already are, then in a sense we all have to just to keep up. And it has a real threat of becoming this crazy race uh, to become something wildly different than human. I don't think you could say no to any of these because these technologies could be so crucially important uh, to people whose lives are unjustifiably hard. And yet at the same time, it is a slippery slope, uh, the most classic of slippery slopes, to become something that is wildly different than we are today. And uh, this is something we should take seriously. It's not science fiction. This, uh, five of my companies have products on the market today. And we need to think about what sort of a world we actually want to collectively live in. Vivian, it's a great essay. I suggest everybody go and read it. Uh, Vivian Ming, theoretical neuroscientist, AI expert, and professional mad scientist. Thank you very much for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. We're building a lot of wall right now, a lot of it. Uh, we've ripped down old wall and we've ripped down wall that didn't even exist. It, was, it had bad footings, bad foundations. It was, there used to be a wall there. There wasn't. It was gobbled up by the people that crossed. We're building beautiful new wall, a lot of it. And it's getting built rapidly. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. The president was handed a major victory on one of his signature issues, the building of a border wall. The Supreme Court approved the use of $2.5 billion in military funding for the purposes of this wall construction. It was a 5-4 decision by the Supreme Court. This is a big win for the president to allow him to proceed with using money that was originally set aside for the military to begin building his border wall. Uh, he wanted to make an in-run around Congress, was unhappy they weren't giving him the money that he wanted. There was quite a bit of opposition to him doing so. And he'll continue to face opposition. Congress has some strings they could continue to pull. They could continue to try to fight this in the courts if they're able to make a different argument. But for the president, at least for the time being, he's going to be able to begin construction. And, and politically, this is a big win for him since building a wall on the southern border was one of his biggest campaign promises. He's now going to be able to go to his supporters and tell them that. He delivered on one of the biggest things he said that he would get them. This ruling with the Supreme Court was kind of interesting. The lawsuits that were brought against this were um, in, in conjunction with the ACLU, but they were brought on behalf of the Sierra Club and the Southern Border Communities Coalition. And the Supreme Court basically found that these private groups aren't appropriate parties to challenge the allocation of federal dollars. So they basically said, nobody cares what you guys say. Um, this is This is a federal issue and that's how it should be handled. That's right. And so we could continue to see Congress try to push back. There's also been efforts by states. Uh, states might have uh, more standing to uh, wage this fight with the federal government, especially in front of a Supreme Court that is conservative and that values state rights. So we might not be hearing the end of this, but at least in the short term, the president has scored a big victory. The president's immigration policy has been kind of a roller coaster all over the place. But he has had a few recent wins, the deal with Mexico, where they put some National Guard troops at, the, at their border to help stem the flow of immigrants. And the other win came the same day as the Supreme Court decision when the president signed a deal with the Guatemalan president saying that 
migrants passing through would have to seek asylum there first before they made their way to the United States. The president has been trying to stop migrants seeking asylum from showing up at the southern border of the United States. He's having a hard time changing the rules, which say that you qualify for asylum when you show up. So instead, he's trying to get allies in between the countries that they're leaving and in our own borders to sort of stop people from coming. He has also tried to change the rules recently such that if you pass through another country to come to ours, you no longer qualify, although we expect that to face a good deal of challenge and have a hard time standing up in the long term. But Trump seems to realize that the optics of this and the way that he's handling the border are very bad. And he's trying to do something aside from reversing his decision to let people come here to try to to reverse that and change those optics. And while the president has a win on this front, another week has passed and now he's fighting with more members of Congress. This time has to do with Representative Elijah Cummings. The president is fighting back criticism that he is racist again in a series of tweets was hitting back on Elijah Cummings saying that his district is disgusting, a rat and rodent infested mess. And a lot of people did not like what he was saying. And the reason why the president was responding to that is Elijah Cummings was talking to border officials and basically disputing how the president is making it out to seem there at the border. I think they said that Elijah Cummings was talking badly about our border patrol agents, things like that. And they just started this whole entire fight. And as I said, again, the president is fighting back criticism that he is racist. To understand a little bit about Elijah Cummings, he's been in Congress since the 1990s. He represents a district that includes the western part of Baltimore and then a number of the western suburbs. He is a black man, and he is very well respected within the United States Congress and outside of it. He chairs the Oversight Committee, which is the committee responsible for investigating the government. Some of his predecessors, like Jim Jordan and Daryl Issa, two Republicans that chaired the committee before him were quite bombastic. Cummings is not. He's sort of a mild-mannered, even-keeled man. He will get worked up, but it doesn't have the sort of fiery edge that we saw with the Republicans who were before him. So, you know, when I talk to Democrats, they've always thought he was quite the difficult man to attack, quite difficult for Trump to go after him, given how much he's viewed as a senior statesman in the party. But these tweets from Trump this weekend, a series of them over a couple of days, in which he said that Baltimore was rodent and crime infested, are being heavily criticized as being racist. I mean, these are heavily black areas. They're areas I've been to. I can tell you that uh, I didn't feel unsafe, and and especially in some of the outer suburbs, but not in the inner city either. I've stayed in that part of town that Congressman Cummings represents. And so the suggestion there is that Trump is talking about these places in that way because black people live there and that it is inherently a dog whistle in an effort to try to discredit a man who's asking questions that the president doesn't like. Mick Mulvaney was on the Sunday shows in defense of this. He said, you know, when the president gets attacked, he's going to fight back. The Baltimore Sun editorial board had their editorial over the weekend and they just ended it with better to have some vermin living in your neighborhood than to be one. Uh, Just a a pretty scathing attack against the president. I'm sure that conversation is going to continue throughout the rest of this week. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Brooke Peterson and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.